I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. This is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! On behalf of the Boo Crew, this is Trev with episode 41. If you're a local to the LA area or will be the weekend of April 12th to 14th, you are not going to want to miss out on Monster Palooza at the Pasadena Convention Center, the greatest celebration of the art of monsters of all time. Celebrity guests from the horror world will be there, like Dee Wallace, Henry Thomas, Bruce Campbell, special effects and makeup demos. The master Tom Savini will be hanging out. We'll actually be honored with a special afterlife party the Saturday night. Life-size creatures, masks, a monster museum, and more. The Boo Crew somehow snuck in there, too, with their own booth. We'll have shirts for sale, pens, pins, stickers, and postcards to hook you up with, and some props from our personal collection for you to check out. Tickets at monsterpalooza.com. Paramount Pictures presents Pets Cemetery in theaters everywhere April 5th. It is so great you're in for a real treat. We talk to directors Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kelch. The secrets to training a cat. Find out what Zelda and A Quiet Place have in common. Do we see a return of the classic theme song originally done by the Ramones? A creepy behind-the-scenes story that crawled out of the set and the incredible tale of bringing this amazing Stephen King novel back to the screen and why you will want to see the film again and again to uncover some truly hidden secrets. Austin and Rachel couldn't be here for this one. They were out on a secret book mission and we'll be back next time. Grab a shovel and let's go out into the woods. Maybe we'll find them out there somewhere. This is Dennis Whitmire. And this is Kevin Kell. You've dug, dug up, up another episode of The Boo Crew. Maybe just some crazy folk tale. But there is something up in those woods. There's something that brings things back. Sometimes dead is better. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio are a writing and directing duo who've been working together for about 25 years. With a deep-seated appreciation for cinematic horror, they have developed a unique singular voice and vision. That, coupled with their inspirational and pioneering DIY trajectory, has brought with it a sea change into that same genre they love so much. Perhaps you experienced the lustful haze of 2014's Starry Eyes or their work on the anthology Holidays, episodes of MTV's Scream, and more. Our guests bring with them a deep understanding of what it takes to get under a viewer's skin. The frights they bring are timeless and unsettling. It's no wonder they are the perfect vessel to return to a Stephen King novel first published in 1983, a novel King himself revealed as the one that scares him the most. So terrifying, he didn't even intend to publish it. Pet Cemetery is in theaters everywhere April 5th. It's a must-see modern-day classic that once you experience will crawl into your DNA and stay with you forever. We are honored to welcome its directors, Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kelch. Thank you. Good to be here. Congratulations on the film, you guys. We had a chance to check it out last night and absolutely loved it. We yes. can't wait to watch it bring the success the whole team truly deserves. It's amazing. I want to see it again. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> out. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Let's go back before all this and talk about some of the first horror films you remember seeing and their impact on you. I grew up with horror even before films. It was something like my mom used to read us Edgar Allan Poe poems and stuff. You know, that was, I guess, our little bedtime story. And uh, I think one of the earliest ones was when I was a kid when we first like got HBO and HBO used to show the same movies over and over again. I used to go around the house going like, I've seen Poltergeist 13 times. I've seen Poltergeist 13. <laughs> I used to keep a checklist of how many times I've seen it. That was one of my earliest examples. And then uh, I'm the youngest of six kids. So there was lots of times where I'd be catching pieces of things where older siblings were watching things in the other room. And I'd be like off in the dining room, peeking into the living room as they were watching Carrie. And I'd get, that's one of the earliest memories I remember. I remember uh, Piper Laurie getting pinned to the, the door. <laughs> oh, that, was, that, was terif- that was terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was one of the early ones I remember. Yeah. And then also just with uh, my sisters watching made for TV movies, like don't go to sleep. I don't know if you remember that one. Yes. The the pizza pizza cutter. cutter. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, (laughs) crazy. Yeah. We're eating pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was some of my earliest memories, Dennis. I was a big scaredy cat as a kid. I, I remember the first thing I saw that really scared the crap out of me was uh, the opening to the Hulk TV show. Mm. Oh, oh, it was yeah. like, it's yeah, that, that scared that too. Noise and like his eyes turned green. And he's like, <laughs> I was like, ran out of the room screaming and crying. Then there was like the video for Thriller where he's like, turns into the werewolf. Yep. And he's like, go away! And I couldn't watch that. And then the one that really destroyed me was Large Marge from TV's Big Event. Wow! <laughs> You're not the first person who's come in here and said that, yeah, actually. Well, I moved my bed against the wall. I had a whole strategy <laughs> for going to bed. Like, I slept in my parents' room for, like, years. I had really messed me up. Here's the real question. Do you have Large Marge here? No. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be sitting here if you did. I'd be shaking on the driveway. Yeah. But, but Dennis talking about television show intros reminds me, I forgot, another one was uh, the intro to Tales from the Dark Side. Oh, oh, yeah. oh that's great. Yeah, yeah, That music was creepy. The music man. was so creepy. Yeah, and the voiceover. And that, just the shots yeah. of the hillsides. Oh, so good. Man lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. If you could put your finger on it, what was it about seeing all that stuff at such an early age that was so compelling or that led you down the path of eventually making a career out of that? Was it a guilty pleasure thing? or I'm paying a guy a lot of money to try and figure out what it was. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm not quite sure. I mean, like, it's just kind of, I guess it's sort of what you grow up with. Again, Dennis could give a different answer because he didn't have as much horror in his life as a kid and was scared. I don't know. For me, I just kind of like it was something I grew up with, you know, so I kind kind of feel like it's just there. I can't really explain it. You know, like maybe uh, other people have more psychological reasons why it was this for me. It was an escape for me. But like for me, I mean, I just... I don't know. It's just, it's always been there. You would think that's something that scared me so much as a kid, I would kind of stray away from. I think I got to a point where it started to draw me in. It started probably with me seeing a uh, chestburster scene not an alien, but I think, but an aliens, which is my favorite movie of all time. I was being like babysat by a neighbor, my friend uh, Russell. They had that scene on. And I was kind of like, same as Kevin. I was watching it through the door and something happened where I was now intrigued by it, you know? And then the twin, the Grady twins, the shining, I was intrigued by that, you know? <laughs> right. To the point where I now had to like get on the roller coaster 
finally and just take the damn ride you know i don't know I, it's sort of exploring that adrenaline you know and the idea of what it did to me and wanting to do it to other people probably is what for me drew me into wanting to make horror when did you guys first meet and get together and start doing this mid 90s we were both from long island i was a couple years older than dennis this was kind of right around the tarantino boom when like you know tarantino came out and everybody wanted to write scripts like tarantino or make movies like tarantino but the thing was even though that was what most people that were into film were talking about still on long island there wasn't a whole lot of people that were like aspiring to be filmmakers or screenwriters or something so we were just at a mutual friend's house one night hanging out and uh it came up because a mutual friend brought dennis over and then like it came up that he was working on a script and then our friend was like oh really kevin writes scripts you know and then like it was just kind of a weird matchmaking thing where we're like oh that's not something you find as often on long long island in the mid 90s so then Dennis was like, oh, I'd like to see some of your stuff. So like I lived around the corner from this friend. I was like, well, let's go. And we walked around the block and I showed him some pages. And then, uh, you know, and then soon after I, we hung out again and he showed me some of the stuff he was working on and kind of went from there. You guys have a real success story and a great message where you gave up going about getting films made by trying to raise money from investors and spending years waiting for other people to give you that chance. And one day you just decided, screw this, let's reverse engineer the whole process. We'll write a script that we can make happen for whatever we have in our bank accounts and base it on that, which led to eventually to Starry Eyes. How important is that path for an aspiring filmmaker, seeing as it led to where you are right now? Probably the most important revolution we had at that point in our career, you know, career in quotes. And I wish we had had that revolution a lot earlier. We made a little small documentary on Chuck Palahniuk, the author of Fight Club. I was doing yep. his website and I still do it. You know, it's like a little side thing. I think a lot of filmmakers put this fictitious number in their head of what they think their movie should cost. I want to make this science fiction apocalyptic movie, you know, and this will be my dream project and everyone will understand it. And I need this amount of money for it, you know, and that's a bad way to go. You know, it should be that you should have a lot of stories that you want to tell. And you should look at what's in front of you, the resources you have, the friends that you know, free equipment you could get, get any money in your bank account or people willing to give you money and then say, all right, I know I have all that. That's what the verse engineering is. Now, let me go ahead and write a story that I know I could tell and that I could do really well using those those assets that I already have. And so for Kevin and I, it took us probably about five years of trying to raise money on this one film to then finally just put that film on a shelf, you know, and say, uh, all right, let's do something else instead that now knowing what we have, what we learned from that whole experience, you know? Yeah, that's a big piece of advice I wish we would have learned earlier. It definitely set us free once we decided, all right, we know what we have, now we're going to do it for that amount instead. Yeah, like Starry Eyes actually ended up being bigger than we thought it was going to be, even for such a small film. We started doing it as a Kickstarter, like Dennis said, we were raising 50 grand. Then uh, some private investors came on board, and then Dark Sky Films came on board, and it ended up being like 300000 <clears> when all was said and done. But uh, we were ready to do it for the fifty grand that we got as a Kickstarter. Like, we both owned 7Ds. We had GoPros. We were going to just do it like run-and-gun style with cheap cameras. The scene where, uh, you know, spoiler, uh, but the, <laughs> the scene where uh, she comes out of the ground, yeah. the rebirth. <laughs> We originally had this way that we planned to do it before we had any other money where we were going to do it in like a bathtub with like, you know, like yeah. with like a garbage <laughs> bag and that. dirt on top of it. And somebody's going to just climb yeah. out of the garbage bag. And the thing is like, yeah, I mean, what was that? It looked like that was like, was that L.A. in the background? Yeah, that was at uh, what's the, in uh, Echo Park. Echo Park? Park? Yeah, Park? Park? yeah, that's oh, that's, that's Dodger like, Stadium uh, in the Hill background. Or Bunker Hill. It's called yeah, like, Radio, Radio oh, Hill yeah, Tower. Yeah, Radio Hill Tower. By Dodger Stadium. Yeah. A lot of homeless people. Yeah, when she stands up, that's Dodger Stadium. Scary area. Yeah. At night, you don't want to be there. We had a crew up there. That's a great scene. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Wow. But yeah, but the point was that we were just going to do it regardless of how it was going to be done. And like, 
who knows what that film would have been or if that film would have been received well but like even if we did that version there would be another charm in it that like you know like what you could pull off with nothing you know so i mean yeah just make your films out with whatever you have How however you did can. you have the starry eyes script before you made that film here's another lesson was that we knew the type of movie we wanted to make so we said all right here's what we want this movie to be if we were looking at the movie as a resume we want it to look good we want to make la look different we want la to be very overcast and sort of like dreary right. you know not the typical sunny beverly hill sidewalk that you normally see you know when you see the cliche of a person arriving in hollywood to go chase their dream randy newman playing yeah <laughs> you know, and we knew that we you know if it was going to be special effects heavy we wanted it all to be practical and, yeah. and really be convincing you know because it's a body horror movie so it was almost like the story itself wasn't really important it was about the things that we wanted the movie to accomplish with the audience you know mm. So really, we were determined to go make the idea of that movie even before we had a script. It started off as a short film and then grew into the feature that it was. That's the only time we ever did it like that. It wasn't like we had this dream project idea that was a script that was already written and polished and then right. we made it. It was more about understanding the type of movie we wanted it to be. The apartment scene towards the end. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Kind of, yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank that's you. a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. That was our buddy's house in Alhambra. These guys are the best. They're filmmakers themselves. They're in a band. They all live in the house. They just open the house up to us to do whatever you want. I mean, we felt so bad because during the scene with uh, the dumbbell. <laughs> yeah. Our friend was sitting watching, and like we didn't think it was going to be like that at all. Like where are we with the blood? And then like the special effects guys go, they go. They were using yeah. like you know a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, like a fire, fire extinguisher, yeah. Yeah. yeah, to like pump this blood out. So it was probably leaking oh. through yeah. the ceiling. Oh, it was, it was <laughs> flying everywhere. Like we told them beforehand, we're like, oh, don't worry about your bed. We we put a we put a layer of plastic under the sheet. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And like, uh, That's enough. Yeah, and then like it starts going. <laughs> Blood is flying everywhere. It's hitting the ceiling, yeah. right? Yeah. He had little, like, things that he had hanging from the ceiling, little, like, mobile-type things that were art things, and there's, like, blood getting on it. And, like, and he's just sitting there, like, on the side, like, watching it. And, like, he's, like, and, like, he's like, I gotta sleep in the thing yeah. for that, guys. But, but, but he was such a cool guy, because he was like, he was like, it's cool, it's cool, but you can see on his face, and he's like, yeah, my, he's like my, my bed, you know? Like, and, uh, and it was like 1 a.m. Yeah. Like, uh, and, uh, sleeping on the couch tonight. But yeah, like, and it was just kind of like, it was, you know, we're horror movie guys, we're gore hounds, we love blood in our horror movies. Usually when we're making things, we're the ones telling the crew more blood because usually yeah. they'll come in with like a little brush and they're painting it on you yeah. like forget the brush go dump the, <laughs> the bucket yeah. you know and uh like pour the cup on yeah. yeah and uh this time it was like just kept coming with their signature I, I was like running over to the door going like stop pumping like, <laughs> just, like <laughs> too much blood coming out you know like it works though oh thank you get, get the point across yeah oh yeah <laughs> well let's delve into a bit of your history with the lore of pet cemetery were you drawn to it first as viewers on the page or through Mary Lambert's 1989 film, how did you get into it? Different for both of us. Yeah, you were... I, uh, the story I've been telling is that I read the book first, but I, that can't be true. Boo Crew brings the truth out of everybody. I think because I was a big scaredy cat, I think whenever that movie was on HBO growing up and uh, there was a Zelda scene, mm. that was like the twins in The Shining. I couldn't watch those scenes. And so I think I always kind of watched around those scenes. I started reading Stephen King, and I, I, the first book of his I read was uh, The Gunslinger. My mom had it, a copy that so I read the first Dark Tower book, which is an odd first yeah. book to read. You know? <laughs> it's a lot different from his other stuff, you know? Right. What drew me to Pet Cemetery was I used to go to use bookstores all the time. I was such a snob where I never wanted to buy the new copy of the book. I always had to have the original cover. And so I found a, cop, a paperback mass market version of the original cover mm. from 83. And it had that quote on the back of it from Publishers Weekly where it was like the most terrifying novel that Stephen King has ever written. 
which felt like a dare. It was like, wow, okay, this is the one that even scared him. Do I dare? And so for me, I think I had never not seen the full movie, or I had, but it was more about just kind of uh, the book was really my, my gateway into it. For me, it was the movie. I was at uh, one of my friend's houses down in his basement. He was the friend that had the parents that went to bed by 7 p.m. You know, everybody always has one of them, the parents yeah. that go to bed by 7 p.m. And that's where you go, like, watch movies and stuff, because yeah. it's almost like there's no parental supervision. We used to watch a lot of movies and sometimes horror movies. But then, like, this one, when I watched it it, it, it had a different effect on me. Like, I think it was, like, dealing with the themes that it dealt with and also Zelda, mm -hmm. like... Dennis was saying, like, I remember I walked home that time, and then, like, it was doing that thing where, I guess, I, if you guys know when you watch a horror movie, and it kind of gets scared, or it makes you kind of, like, gets, you know, the uh, adrenaline going, and then when you go out, you look at stuff, like, all, like, the tree branches of the night, like, everything kind of looks different, you yeah, know, right. like, you're kind of seeing things through this kind of, like, different eye when, like, a horror movie really kind of like hits that sweet spot mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and that was it for me and then it became like a favorite of mine after that i would watch it over and over again i had it on tape probably off of hbo like dennis was saying and then like then i went to the theater to see pet cemetery 2 when it came out eddie furlong yeah <laughs> and it was filmed in maine right it was one of the first stephen king yeah, yeah. adaptions filmed actually in maine he was a producer on it and that was a caveat he was like yeah. we're not doing it unless it's in maine so he had the power to get that done. Yeah. Wow. And nowadays with the tax rebates, it's like it's like a 5% tax rebate in Maine where it's like 35% in Louisiana. Okay. Because so, yeah. yeah. people don't shoot in Maine yeah. anymore. You know what's really cool before Pet Cemetery? I don't know if you guys did it, but someone was playing all Stephen King trailers. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond Fest. Those guys always like, do that like stuff. Like Silver Bullet, like all these yeah. cool, like, yeah. that was, yeah. Was about that library place. commercial with him. Yeah. 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 Nothing, let's be honest, guys. Nothing beats the Maximum Overdrive trailer. <laughs> I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Yeah. You want something? done right you gotta do it yourself yeah. and that's yeah, like that's the it. only one he directed I know he probably regrets it probably regrets that trailer yeah. well, oh he regrets it we when we did our thing for Paramount for the, the behind EPK, the scenes yeah. stuff for talking me and Dennis like thought it'd be funny we both like pointed at the camera and went we're gonna scare the hell out of you. and I'm like I already re I regretted it as I was doing I know. <laughs> if a person sees that out of context and they don't know they're spoofing that trailer they'll be like who are these assholes right. they're gonna scare us screw you man he's not gonna scare me that good music oh, yeah. though ACDC I, uh, oh yeah. yeah I love Max who man drive. Yeah. <laughs> it, has a, it has a vibe yeah it has a vibe it's great it's got get... something no no let me, let me, I don't know what I would call it Oh, even it's just the way it opens yeah, up. Yeah, 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 the yeah. opening is great. Yeah, it's yeah, great. great. Big accident on the drawbridge and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you guys find out that this opportunity existed for you guys to actually get in and be a part of making this? And yeah. uh, it's been in development for like what, yeah. 10 years at Paramount. It happened, like, it happened like twice. Like yeah. there was two of us getting involved because right after yep. Starry Eyes, we heard that the project was available and we wanted it but our like reps were like you're never gonna get it you know you just made a three hundred thousand dollar movie and then we spent like next couple of years working on some studio jobs we got attached to some other films they already had a director on that and then kind of like three things sort of happened kind of like the, you know the planets aligning and like those three things where we now had done some studio jobs so we were able to get in a room on it but the movie that we were attached to fell through so we weren't attached to anything their director dropped out and then it came out and suddenly everybody wanted <laughs> yep. to make like stephen king property so yeah. like those three things came together and then we were able to actually get in a room That's on cool. it you know? yeah wow. yeah and it did really well right Oh God! Yeah, yeah. the most <laughs> successful horror film ever. Yeah, yeah. I think it's close to like a billion dollars already. 
profit. What yeah. was Stephen King's involvement with this remake? He read the script, and uh, basically, the thing that's really cool about Stephen King is that because so many movies are made out of his books, he really kind of values and respects the adaptation process. He doesn't want someone transcribing his work. He wants you going off and adapting it, as long as you stay true to the essence of the source material. So he stayed out of the whole process until the end, where we now had a finished cut that we were going to show him, which was very nerve-wracking. I remember the hour and a half that he was watching it, we were like, looking at our watch going like he's probably on this scene right now you know because wow. he, he lives down in florida now he still has a home in bangor but he has a home in florida as well and he has like a theater that he goes to and sits there on his own with like his agent they watch the movie at a theater this wow. is two of them and so that was nerve-wracking and then he got out of it and uh, called our producer and really liked it a lot and was very supportive and we were in the process we were back in um, montreal doing uh, like five days of additional shooting because when you're working with kid actors you get them for eight hours a day right you know, as opposed to 12 so you're not able to get everything so we had to go back and get some more stuff and then he even had a you know he contributed and, and he he read what our reshoot pages were and stuff and he had some ideas and stuff that's so he was cool. kind of involved in that way but it was mainly just kind of like staying out of our way and letting us do but our that's thing. a high compliment because in my yeah. opinion he's the greatest he's my yeah. favorite writer you know he's the he best is, he's yeah. the best yeah. and, and the fact that he approved your guys script but i love what you guys did with this story well he had a good it's incredible today. it's incredible there was a, an, an interview you and Interview Weekly about the process of it, and they asked him about the movie, and he said, "Look." But they asked him about the change, you know, yeah. the big change. And he said, "Uh, there's a uh, you could take Route 37 to get to Tampa or Route 58, but either way, you're going to get to Tampa." Right. That's so cool. the whole thing is, as long as you get to Tampa yeah. at the end, yeah. just, you know, yeah. I think what we did, we stayed true to the essence of the novel. Doesn't matter what road we took to get there. And it was yeah. freaking scary, man. I jumped out of my seat seven <laughs> yeah. times. I counted. <laughs> Lots of people screaming. I was the one jumping on Leo. And <laughs> That's true. And I was the next editor. Yeah. It was no, you know, I didn't know that. Right. So yeah, you'd probably show. say, hey, we hung out with that weird guy. We'll tell our <laughs> That's great. The other guy's laugh. The best compliment. So upon getting that blessing from Stephen King, was he wearing the priest uniform? <laughs> we had a joke yeah. where uh, they wanted to get him as a cameo in the movie, and we had all these ideas and stuff. And then, Kevin, what was the idea you had? of? <laughs> oh, my idea was that... Well, first it was just to play the priest, Oh, yeah, right? people go, and he should play the priest again or whatever. And I go, well, if we were to do that, I want to take him digitally from the original movie. And <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's mullet. You know, no. like. <laughs> and, and making the same unaged character from the first one yeah. is the priest again <laughs> 30 years later. But no, we didn't do that. One of the many ways that this film works is that there are fresh new takes on the scary elements and central themes of the source material. With where you decided to take it, it almost elevates the tragedy of some of those things that happen when you explore those themes through a different path. Can you talk a bit about those decisions? That was basically why we did it. It was sort of like, if you look at the Pet Cemetery, the book, the original movie, Ellie is the character that is asking questions about death. She's right. asking what happens to my cat when it dies? Where do we go when we die? She's the one asking all these questions. So the idea was sort of that if that was the character that got killed instead of the young boy, well, then she has the presence of mind to know what is happening to her. She's self-aware. She has the vocality to express and to question what is happening to her. So then you go like, it opens it up to all these psychological scenes that you couldn't do with a three-year-old. She could ask those same questions that she was asking earlier or go, I thought you said we were going to, I would be around for a long time. Or you said there was nothing after death. There is something yeah. after death. She could challenge him in these ways and, and really take those themes yeah. that we were exploring right. full circle. You could see it from both sides of the spectrum. Why didn't you save me? Yeah, yeah, in a way that we couldn't with. That psychological torture to us was almost more interesting than like the, the physicality of it, the violence. It was more like, wow, the things that she could ask and how she could twist that figurative knife of like, 
asking these really dark questions, and I was just really irresistible. And that was yeah. one of the things we want to get back in from the book, was that, like, if yeah. you remember, uh, if, have you guys all read the book? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Gage is killing Judd, he says all these things about Judd's wife, about Norma, and he's saying all these horrible things about her, and, and I've seen people debate whether or not this was, uh, it was true. I've seen that online, people debating whether or not the things Gage said were true, or if he was just trying to get under uh, Judd's skin. But either way, whether it's true or not, it's still the same thing. He's psychologically yeah. murdering Judd before he physically murders him. And that was something we wanted to get in with Ellie. And I think that's probably the thing is in a book, you could write the three-year-old saying anything. And Stephen King explains that he opens his mouth and in a perfect English, this comes out and he's, it's full paragraphs of things that this kid is saying. But a three-year-old can't really do that. Right. So by uh, making it the nine-year-old, it's like you could also explore these things that the book did to where the characters kind of psychologically torture you before they kill you well, along with the physicality also the sort of yeah. things the character the does top. Yeah. right yeah. <laughs> the, the whole movie is a chain reaction we always like to say death is in the air like right. death is in the dna of this story right right so the minute they move there the very second day that the throne boxes out they hear this drum beat they see this procession and the minute that they see this the, the movie's been activated to the point that you could see Rachel's expression, like she does not like that. She wants to quickly take Ellie and go back inside and have her watch right. a TV show, but it's too late. The whole movie snowballs yeah. from that point forward. It's almost like it was right. kind of meant to happen. And that's why I think that in this book and in the movie, the reason why the Pet Cemetery is right there before the deadfall, because they don't want anybody going to that place. They built this deadfall to try and block the path. And right in front of the deadfall, there's this place where it's supposed to go like, hey, Come bury your animal here. Like, make right. a ritual yeah. out of yeah. it. Do yeah. it the right way, you know? Now, speaking of poltergeist, <laughs> I think Carol Ann burying the bird. And the yeah. mom helps her do it. And she puts the little things in the box, says a little prayer, and they bury it in the backyard. I wanted to ask about that area beyond the deadfall, the burial ground. It looked spectacular. Was yes. that a practical set? How was that done? When you read the book, we think the best chapter in the book is the burial of the cat of church. And a lot of Stephen King fans really cite that as one of his, his best chapters that he's ever written. His scariest chapters. And so when we approached the studio and we were pitching our vision for the film, we said that whole sequence when they buried Church should really be a set piece. You should put more money into that. We should spend a little more time with the runtime living in that sequence. So our plan was to everything before the deadfall, we were actually going to really shoot in the woods about an hour outside of Montreal. The house that we shot at was an actual location. We didn't build that. Oh, so the two houses were actually right across from each other, too? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no yeah. way! And uh, behind the red house, the guy owned, like, acres of woods, and he said, go ahead, shoot wherever you want back there. They actually had a pet cemetery back there. No. Not the one we used in the movie. Yeah. We built our own. But... Yeah, this one had, like, horses. Yeah, that. yeah. So uh, we said that'll all be organic and grounded, because that's the real woods. But once they go over that deadfall, once they cross the barrier, we want it to feel otherworldly and sort of hyper-real the way it does in the book. You know, in the book, the way it's described is like you don't hear any animal sounds. You hear the sound of something stalking them, like the Wendigo. The, you see the northern lights, you right. know, yeah. Little God Swamp. It's a very like a weird, mystical place. What we did was we built all that on the soundstage. So everything beyond the deadfall, we recreated the woods, but built the trees differently. We were able to control the weather. And then we built the burial ground, all 45 steps. It was like pretty high. I mean, when you were standing up there, you felt like you were three stories above the actual wood. Oh, they're like the steps, they, oh, yeah, they no. go up to the thing. Was John, all... That was all real. So when John wow. Lithgow goes up there and looks over at the woods, he's really looking over at the woods that we Whoa. built. That was all, on the one hand, fake, but at the, on the other hand, practical. You could really like live in that area. It was like, Biggest set we had ever been on. As far as being in the woods and the actual cemetery, did anything creepy happen in those woods when you were filming? Or was there anything eerie? The most <laughs> horrific thing in those woods is the black flies. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's 
from like that area or knows black flies i didn't know black flies until i went there I never heard oh yeah, yeah yeah i'm from canada i know that area well too okay. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> put it, your hand up in yeah. the air they'll just swarm you oh god yeah, yeah. there yeah. you will physically see clouds of them, yeah and they bite phone. itches like crazy way worse than a mosquito bite it's like a like almost like a spider bite would Whoa. but it, and it but it lasts for like a week it doesn't oh, go away oh, you know gosh. like and it was tough we were working overnights in the woods getting bit by the flies it's super warm out you're trying to put clothes on so you don't get bit by the flies but then it's really hot too you know and it was just we had like beekeeper masks on at one point really (laughs) (laughs) i mean i know it's always sexier when it's like you know like there's crazy things that happen on set you know especially for like a a title like this yeah uh, it was a pretty smooth shoot i mean it all went really according to plan all the actors were game we had an amazing crew nothing really crazy happened well your story but not in the woods yeah so yeah one night towards the end of the shoot i had a weird dream where i was babysitting the twins that play gauge oh and so we were at the mall and i was watching them at the mall and like we were at a food court i remember and (laughs) one of the two ran off got away from me and i was like trying to chase him and he was running ahead of me through the crowd and i was like i screwed up i had one job (laughs) and he he was running up the steps towards like the food court and he tripped and face planted and i remember he got up and he turned around he was crying in the dream and he had a bloody nose and i was like oh i'm so screwed (laughs) the parents are gonna kill me and uh then i woke up and i was like that was a weird dream was that like an anxiety dream about like keeping an eye on them on set you know i don't know weird okay whatever move on and then i forgot about it then i get to set and you come up and you tell me what happened oh no no what happened was i told you the dream i didn't know the dream yet no before i knew the dream one of the twins moms said to me she goes oh my god strangest thing this morning and she pulls out her phone starts opening up her photos and she goes i don't remember which one was hugo or luca i think it was luca she goes yeah this morning when luca woke up he just had a bloody nose his nose was bleeding (laughs) oh that's creepy i took a picture of it and she pulls out her phone and shows me a picture of him like nose bleeding yeah and then Dennis told me the dream, and I said, "You gotta go talk to this kid's oh mom right now." And I told her, and her face was like death warmed. It was like death warmed over. It was like really a chilly moment. The only thing I could deduce is I have The Shining. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> these kids, so are they French Canadian? So yeah, they do not speak English. They speak yeah. French. They barely they speak, speak anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask about John Lithgow. His performance is amazing. I can't yes. picture a more perfect <laughs> guy for that role of Judd Crandall. He brings such a warmth and he plays that, you know, that little subtle, I've got a secret thing going on as well and yeah. still maintains that warmth. Was he always number one choice? Yeah, he was top pick the same way you said. You couldn't yeah. see anybody else handling this. Like, that was what it was. Like, when you read the character of Judd, he's described as being a hulking man, a big man. John Lithgow's got the physicality. He's 6'4", so he's this big guy. And then you look and you go, Judd's the kindly neighbor, but he's got a dark secret. And you go, some people only remember John from like certain things. Like when we brought him up, some people would go, John, but like he's daddy's home too or whatever. And you go, yeah, but he's also like the villain in Brian De Palma movies and Cliffhanger and Ricochet and like all these great movies. And you're like, he really had the duality of that you wanted for this character. He could do both parts. He could be the kindly man that could have this relationship with this young girl. He's all, and he could also really have that dark side hidden underneath and again and it was all embodied in the perfect physicality this big man he played it very well I oh mean, yeah he, yep. he did not try to recreate fred gwen's character he did his own thing he knew him in real life they they were friends and they had been in a play together oh he, well. said he was the only actor that was tall in him because fred Gwynn's six five and so right. he purposely uh he didn't watch the first film he's never seen it because he figured and i understand this that subconsciously he would be almost emulating what fred did right. because what fred's basically doing is your typical main accent 
which it almost sounds like a you parody. You want to go up there. Yeah. <laughs> we can all do it right now. You know? Jason Clark as Lewis is just unbelievable. I hear he got so involved on set, you guys would call him the archivist. Yes. That was the nickname <laughs> I gave him. It really was. Though. I mean, he, he was always constantly coming up to us on the set saying, oh, this is a part where we could get that in. That, that great moment from chapter 27. And I was like, what? What, what moment? <laughs> yeah. I've read the book three times. And I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But he, he'd be right. And he, he knew the page numbers and everything like that. And it was like, let's, let's try to get that into the performance here. You yeah. Know? And sometimes he just did it without saying, let's really? Or he throw, would. Yeah. We'd come yeah, over. You he'd know? throw in some line. And then we go, what the hell is that? And we go over and we go like, hey, Jason, now you, you're adding on some other line. I don't, I don't know. Just, just do the script. Line, you, go, you sure? It's from the book. But there, there was the one he went too far, though. Remember, there was one moment we went too far with the book, and we we had to shut him down. Where when he's talking to Ellie and he's saying uh, Ellie Font the Great and Terrible, that's obviously a reference to Oz the Great and Terrible. Yes, which is a big yeah. part of the book. You know, it's the painting that she has at home. Rachel's parents. It, the book is broke up into three books. Part one is called The Pet Cemetery. Part two is called The Micmac Burying Ground. Part three is called Oz the great and terrible but the way he writes it in the book is oz the great and terrible which you sound like like a looney tunes character right right, right so jason was doing this really heavy emotional scene with like ellie and it, in the scene he has to call about take after take he's saying oh you're ellie Funk the great and terrible and every time i was like i, I try not to laugh behind the monitor so I, we hated doing it but i leaned over to kevin i'm like Maybe we should have him not do that and so we had to go over and go and he's like what's the matter guys is it good but like yeah it's really good just maybe don't don't do that. He's like, and then he's like, ah, but it's in the book, though. Like, I know it's in the book, but you're reading in the book. You're not saying it out loud. So let's, let's just maybe don't do that one. And he, he agreed. And I want to talk about the cat because the cat is so cute. And then not so cute. There were five cats, correct? I think four. Four. Shady, Jaeger, Leo, and Tonic. Leo. Oh, my Leo gosh. Leo is the star. He's on the so, poster. How That's long, Leo on the poster. How long did it take? Take to train a cat. I didn't even know you could train a cat that yeah. well. Yeah. Didn't, <laughs> yeah, we didn't know either. We both have cats. I've got two. He's got three. Look at our apartments. It's a testament that you can't train cats because our <laughs> furniture's all scratched and <laughs> oh, no. my phone cables are bit. They wake us up in the morning. Just an interesting side thing. One of my cats, every morning when he wants food, he goes over to the cat tree that's by the window and I've got the blinds and almost like the cup on the prison. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, goes, he goes to the blinds and he goes... Yeah, he runs his paw along the blinds, just go <laughs> until you wake up. And that, that was one of the things that I asked Kirk and Melissa, our cat trainers. I was like, so how do I get him to stop doing that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Oliver, you know, and the uh, door stopper. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver hits that. He hits the door stopper. It never shuts up. Right, right. Yeah. But it was just crazy because when we said what kind of cat we wanted and we were modeling it after the cat on the original hardcover book. When we showed them that, they went, okay, we're going to have to find some cats that look like that. And they went out and they found some rescues that they then kept. So these cats got homes, but they went out and found these cats. And I'm going like, wait, so you got to go first search and find these cats when we're like productions coming oh up real gosh. soon yeah. and you're going to train, train them? them to do this. And yeah, I go like, late start and too. you know, us not believing that cats can even be trained. I go, yeah, yeah good luck. I started looking at Dennis going we like, worried. maybe we shouldn't on a CG cat. Which was a suggestion. Yeah. And we were like, no way. Yeah. yeah. But like, I was like getting real nervous and worried about, about that. it. Yeah. And then like the cats came and like, even when you go to their place for the first time, they show you like, these are the cats we found. And you know, like, oh yeah, they look great. And they're like, just 
wandering off doing whatever and doing what like, cats and, do yeah. doing what cats do yeah and you go this is never gonna happen, never gonna happen. Like, don't <laughs> yeah. worry don't worry we just got them we're gonna don't worry boss we're gonna give train us a them. we still got time and all this and we're like okay you know like and we're, <laughs> oh my God. we're ready to like pull our hair out thinking this is gonna be that whole what have we done? saying don't ever work with animals when it came time to shoot they were amazing wow. they trained them so good you couldn't believe the things that they had these cats do and these cats would do things take after take and like dennis always says they were treated better than the yeah. did you adopt any of these cats i, I would have i've got three cats already i can't my wife would kill me if i came home with a fourth cat wow a screen used cat lauren yes, I know. <laughs> the ultimate amazing, living though. movie problem yeah. right and they yep. came yeah. trained well, one of the traders yeah uh, melissa kept tonic the, the good church and, and leo too Kirk, Kirk kept leo. leo they kept the two hero cats yeah Aww. and they have their own instagrams now oh now lauren you get to ask oh your question gosh. about who kept the uh okay so <laughs> oh god as far as props go, who... I knew it. A prop question. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise. Who kept church? There has to be like a fake right. church. That would be a cool one to hold on to. He made a yeah. few of those. And that looked good on your, your dining table. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Put it on your, on your, by your driveway and just yeah. make all the neighbors exactly. sad. Exactly. Yeah. Some of those masks. There's actually, we've seen a lot of original pet cemetery props that are in great condition, yeah. like private collectors that have Gage's scalpel oh, and wow. then the yeah. foot. In the slipper, how did uh, get I saw stuff? No, no, I saw online. I sent this to Adrian when he was starting work on ma- the makeup. I was online and I saw an auction on some auction site where they were uh, selling the Zelda molds for oh, Zelda's yeah. back. back. Wow, an, un- an unused set of molds. So I sent it to Adrian and I was like, "Well, he, this is the, you can, this will really knock your budget down if you want to just <laughs> <That's> <laughs> joking, crazy. just buy yeah. this." But uh, he was going to buy it. He was contemplating buying it to have it like framed on his wall. You know, yeah. I don't think he did. So <laughs> might, might still be available if you guys. Uh, I'm going to Google that. <laughs> We're introduced to young Jete, Jete yeah. Lawrence, who we've seen in our friend Jen Wexler's movie, The Ranger. The Ranger. Yeah, I've seen oh, it. Nice. I've we seen it. Jen. I was at yeah. the premiere. Were oh, no. The premiere? No, we had our own premiere. Yeah, we had our own little premiere. Uh, there you go. Yeah, we love that film. A lot of punk rockers in that film. Yeah, no, I know. I was going to bring yeah. that up before when I brought up Return of the Living Dead. I was going to bring up The Ranger as well. Oh, cool. <laughs> she loves Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, she's yeah. Kinda... Is that the first time that you guys had seen her work before? Or No, we didn't even know she was in The Ranger, I think, until after we cast her. And we're like, oh, she's in a Mutual Friends film. We only really saw like some TV stuff. And her two older sisters are also actresses. Okay, she okay. She was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah she's yeah. funny. Interesting thing, while we were filming in Montreal, Fantasia was happening. Happening, and the ranger was playing at Fantasia and we came in and we were like hey Jate found out you're in our friend Jen's movie and she's like yeah and we were like uh you know it's playing like at Fantasia this weekend and that's so we like reached out to Jen and uh, Heather and that uh, yeah they got Jate and her grandma I think and her mom she all went to, uh, they went yeah. to the ranger and then they came in the next day and I went how was the movie and I think her grandma was like bloody yeah <laughs> 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 Pretty cool family. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's so great in this movie, though. Yeah. I mean, she just, once that transformation happens, she's just flat out creepy. We, uh, that was one of our biggest worries, besides the cat. We weren't worried about the first part of that. A lot of young kids are going to come in and easily be able to, like, warm the audience and go, oh, they're so adorable and cute. We love them. That part we weren't worried about. It was more about how does she flip that switch? Can the kid really do that convincingly and really be scary? We didn't want the typical tropey, hello, mommy. You know, we didn't want that stuff. We needed her to feel like there was something kind of primal and ancient in her. How do you tell it to a kid? It's like Kevin and I are on set going like, you're not you anymore. There's this ancient vessel that's uh, using all these like pretentious terms. And she's just looking at us like, she's like, okay, so you want me to do it like this? And she just did this voice. 
that was nothing we could think of. The scratchy <laughs> kind of voice, you know, that sounded old, like beyond her years, you know. Oh, wow. And she discovered that on her own. That was all her. And then whenever it came down to performance where she had to do something very scary, she would just say, all right, give me a minute. And she would just kind of go off to the corner and channel something. I don't know where she got it from. The story we always tell is we went up to the parents and we thought the parents had prepared her for it. And they were like, no, we thought you did. And we were like, well, then where else is she getting it from? <laughs> she didn't really take a lot of direction. For real. Yeah. It was really just about pointing her the right way and then letting her go. Yeah. No, every time when we actually did give her direction, I, I'd be sitting there and like Dennis was saying, we'd be saying some long pretentious thing or something going like yeah so yeah an ancient force is speaking through you the woods <laughs> the essence of the, whatever and all this and we'd go on for all this and i'd be sitting there thinking like she's got no clue what i'm talking about and i'm just going on way too long about this or whatever and then you'd go like cool and she'd go yeah or like cool yeah and she's a head nod and a yes and that You're was like, it she and didn't then, get it and right like, she's, not she's, just, she's just <laughs> no. she's just humoring me and then she'd go like and on the next take like you got it. <laughs> she uh, she uh, she knew what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. A, a nine-year-old, that's insane. Did you guys find you had any shorthand with Amy Samitz, who plays Rachel in the film? She carries a lot of the emotional weight. She's an accomplished writer and director herself. Yeah, she's great to work with. She's a natural. I mean, she's an amazing actress. She had some emotionally demanding scenes, like you said, and take after take, she brought it every time. You think like at some point the well would dry up when you're trying to channel these emotions and she could just bring it time yeah, after time. Like she's a great. Q&A last night. She was super yeah. funny. Yeah, she's really <laughs> funny. And as far as her being a writer and director, it really helped. She uh, made it a point. She was never pushing anything. Like she shut off the writer-director. Yeah. She never, turned off of her writer-director part of the brain. But like sometimes we would ask her like if we were trying to figure out something we would go, well, what would you do? You know, how would you yeah. approach this moment? And she was like, oh, well, I would kind of do this. And we go, okay, yeah, cool. We would work you it know? through together. It was really helpful having that collaborator on mm -hmm. set. She's brilliant. Having been in so many horror movies, you know, she understands that certain scenes call for bigger reactions because you're selling it to the physicality. And sometimes when actors haven't done a lot of horror films, they don't understand that you have to sometimes oversell certain things. You want to be able to like see a person saying nothing and just kind of walking down a hallway and reacting to sounds, you know, and it's got to feel grounded. Yes, but it's also got to be a little bigger than normal because you're in a horror film. You, you want to sell that stuff and it makes it easier on the editing. And uh, that was the shorthand was that we never really had to push her to do those things. She knew how to how to bring those bigger emotions. Like with the Zelda scenes, when Zelda's coming out, we're like, okay, you're gasping here and you're really upset. And it was like, we never had to push her to go further. She always knew the exact level of uh, emotion and reaction and performance that we needed for those scenes because she'd done them so well in other horror movies. You used the composer, Chris Young, who's oh, yeah. done yeah. Hellraiser, Drag yeah. Me to Hell, and Nightmare on uh, Elm Street 2. A couple little movies. Yeah, a couple yeah. movies. <laughs> what were you going for as far as the sound of the film? It evolved. Yeah, I mean, it started off where... We went after Chris Young primarily because he, he was good with big orchestra. He listened to the Drag Me to Hell. It's such a, a big string-based or you know orchestral-type score. Then it was interesting. Through the process of working with him, we started to lean more into a uh, like a synth digital score. It was more uh, everything he was doing in his own studio. He wasn't doing it with a big orchestra. So it evolved. That was his idea. You realize that a guy like Chris Young could really do anything. He's one of those classical guys that approaches everything from themes. It was really about like, okay, we want this to be one of those scores where it's not just like a wall of noise or just like soundscapey. It has to be like themes, melodies, and things that get stuck in your head. That was something we did with Starry Eyes too, where Jonathan Snipes, the composer there, he had about a month to do that score. And I think two and a half to three weeks were spent just coming up with the new, 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 Because once he had that, he was able to then base the writing of that theme of all the, through all the other different cues. And Chris Young did the same thing. He came up with Ellie's theme 
And if you watch the movie again and you just listen for that that theme, it runs concurrent through so many different sequences in the movie, but it evolves and changes as the movie changes. Mm-hmm. Good composers are able to do that. You're able to like just listen to the score without even seeing the movie, and you can kind of hear the story of the movie through the, the music. I gotta say, you know, the scares in this movie are fantastic. Great sound <laughs> design. You know, not also you're watching the movie and you're you're expecting the scare to come from you know the main mm-hmm. plot, right? But there's also that subplot, the whole Zelda side story. Yeah. Some of those scenes were fucking scary you that's you the know, guys who do the quiet place yeah same company really yeah yep. he squared he squared yeah wow uh, these two guys it's funny when we, we were uh, in the process of hiring them we had a big discussion about sound they were kind of like taken aback in a good way because we sat there for like an hour over lunch and all we did was just talk about like sound theory and stuff and like they were like oh you guys really give a shit about this don't you yeah. we we're like oh yeah this has to be like an auditory experience sound has to be scarier than picture in yeah. a lot of scenes and the zelda scenes were really a great place to do that yeah, yeah. they were and then also tim we were discussing earlier the ramones oh yeah oh yeah. yeah the ramones were in the original we hear you're a fan of the ramones right this is true yeah as Stephen <laughs> king's my favorite writer the ramones are my favorite wow punk okay. rock band oh wow that's pretty crazy about, about like about 100 miles man and in the lead. Who loves Ramones? You guys like Ramones? Oh, they're great. I yeah. can not like them. You said you toured with them? Yeah. It was uh, Ramones, Soundgarden, wow. Metallica. That's a great concert. Wow. Oh, my God. 1996. Yeah, I watched them every night on the stage. That was around the time when I, when I saw you guys. And that's when around he would, every night, he would, be, he would go, is there any uh, Stephen King fans out there? Wow. <laughs> the crowd go crazy. Yeah. Right? Like, like, who, and they would like, play the song? Like, where other writer would get that kind of response right. from a bunch of punk rock heavy metal fans? Yeah, it's crazy. Like no, like Herman Melville doesn't get that. Well, this this might sound sacrilegious to you, but uh, for a long time, uh, didn't want to have that song in the movie. We fought it, and we right. were like, and everyone kept saying, "Oh, you got to do that. You got to do that." And that was the biggest thing we saw on Twitter was. Uh, the Ramon song is into the movie that I'm, you know, I'm not going to see the movie. And we were like, man, people really, really love that song. And so it got to the point where towards the very end of post-production, we were like a week away from like locking the film and going to South by. We couldn't figure out a song for the end credits. So we were just going to go with score. But then we were like, yeah, but the movie ends in such a bleak way that it might be kind of fun to kind of go to an explosive song like that. Right. We were camping in all these different songs from all these different bands and nothing felt right and we had like producers saying like oh just use don't fear the reaper now the stand did that the tv show like that song is synonymous with the stand right we suddenly stopped fighting it we said why are we fighting this it's a great song and uh there was this band Starcrawler. i don't even want to call them up and coming because they've already got a pretty huge following but they were huge fans of the song itself and of the original movie and right. book and they were ecstatic at the chance of doing Whoa. it and just we responded to that excitement i know and it ends with the credits i want to hear it i know and guess what <laughs> and happened they lowered, <laughs> yeah. lowered, the they lowered yeah. the sound i know yeah who does that that breaks my heart now yeah, the band was there too and so the, and and i'm like they're playing pet Cemetery, I can't hear it. And it's mixed loudly too. So like just go see it again when it comes yeah, out. Right? Yeah, and we go yeah, see it again. Yeah, yeah and stay we'll for it. it. Because I guarantee people will won't get up. It's a good cover. They'll sit yeah, there yeah. and listen okay. to the whole well, I song. I think you guys did the right thing. You guys you, you paid homage to the original Hell yeah. yeah. This concept. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Yes. Twofold. One are you guys making another horror movie again in the future? Good and chance. two, is there a chance for you guys to do some sort of television so I could like binge watch? Your shows. Yeah, we're working on. I want to watch like eight of your things in a All row. All right. Yeah, we're working on both things. We're trying. Yeah. We're trying to. You know, nothing's set in stone yeah. yet, but we're making yeah. moves on couple different things. Would you say it would be genre specific? It would feel like, like we're going to like into like rom-coms or something. No, no, no. 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 Okay. And like the, we, we have an idea for a TV show that hasn't been much movement on it because we've been too Don't busy. tell anybody they might rip it off. 
I will say what appeals to us about TV is the idea of like an eight hour movie, like what Mike Flanagan did with the House on Haunted Hill, essentially telling like a a 10 hour movie. I mean, that's what's so great about TV nowadays. It doesn't have to be episodic. It can be very cinematic, you know, so that appeals to us a lot. By the way, I caught a couple nods, a couple Stephen King nods, caught the Derry, the It reference, I caught the St. Bernard reference. What else? Reference. See, that's the only two I caught. There's another another Ramones nod in there. Can't can't tell you what it is. And there's more than that. There's there's a couple, a handful of Easter eggs. I only caught a couple. We, but it would spoil the fun if we said them all. Of course. Yes. You got to go back yes. and watch it again. I'm definitely but. going back to see it again. Yeah, yeah. 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 We made it layered on purpose so you'll catch stuff each time yeah. you see it. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's fun. That's a fun Very, you know? very well done. Thank yes. you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thank you guys. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody go see Pet Cemetery in theaters everywhere April 5th. I know what you're thinking of doing, but they don't come back the same. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 41. Special thanks to Paramount Pictures and our guests, Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kelch. Follow at Pet Cemetery Movie on Instagram and at Pet Cemetery MOV on Twitter. See it in theaters everywhere April 5th. Till next time, Trev for the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Bye.